Good evening and welcome to lesson number four. Today we're going to be talking about beyond personal freedom, Judaism as a liberation, what does it mean, our personal freedoms. And we'll start today with a video for our first case. centuries, people were brutally kidnapped from Africa and forced into slavery in the American colonies. By the mid-19th century, however, the United States was fiercely disunited over the practice of slavery. The southern states built their entire economy on the exploitation of people as slaves, whereas the northern states had abolished the practice as a contradiction to the right of every human to be free. This friction led to the Civil War of 1861. But just four years shy of the war, and just eight years before slavery was permanently abolished throughout the United States, a Massachusetts court faced a slavery case with an unusual twist. The defendants were a white couple, Lewis and Laura Sweet, who lived in Nashville, Tennessee, where slavery was still legal and prevalent. During their travels, the Sweets were in the habit of taking along their black slave, a lady by the name of Betty. In 1857, the Sweets toured Canada and various northern states, but when they arrived in Lawrence, a city in the abolitionist state of Massachusetts, they ran into trouble. Local anti-slavery activists recoiled at the sight of a woman of color, accompanying her white master and mistress. They demanded that the Sweets set Betty free. The couple claimed that they would not retain Betty against her will, but that Betty was not seeking her freedom. The activists then turned to Betty. They begged her to assert her rights and to refuse to return to Tennessee with the Swedes, but Betty brushed them away. One Lawrence activist, a widow named Lucy Skyler, petitioned the Boston courts to intervene. The case, referred to simply as Betty's case, was heard by Massachusetts Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw, a deep thinker with considerable influence on the development of American law. Shaw requested the party's consent to interview Betty in private. He reported, I proposed and had an examination of the said Betty, apart from the said sweet and wife, and all other persons, upon which it appeared to me that she is 25 years old, intelligent, and capable of judging for herself, that she has a husband in Tennessee and other relatives, that she is much attached to Mr. and Mrs. Sweet, is very well treated by them, and desires to remain and return with them. And this desire she expressed decisively, and upon repeated inquiries. I explained to her her right to freedom and protection here, and that she could not lawfully be taken away against her will. The judge found himself in a quandary. Under the laws of his state, slavery was illegal and wrong. On the other hand, Betty insisted that she wished to remain with her masters. Betty's freedom appeared to be pitted against her free choice. Judge Shaw opted for the free choice argument. It was contrary to all the principles of freedom that this or any other person should not exercise a free choice in such a matter. 
Betty was entirely at liberty to exercise her free choice, and no one could interfere with her without incurring a personal liability. Wherefore, it was ordered and adjudged that the said Betty be at free liberty to remain with Mr. and Mrs. Sweet, or go elsewhere at her free choice, and that all persons be interdicted and forbidden to interfere with her personal liberty in this respect. The underlying dilemma of Betty's case rings louder and lingers longer than an individual judge's decision. Should an individual be free to choose to be a slave? So to recap what we have over here is in this story we have where Justice Shaw saw that while Betty, who was this uh, slave of Mr. and Mrs. Sweet, comes to Massachusetts and in Massachusetts she has the freedom not to be a slave, she also has the freedom to make the choice to be a slave. And the case that we have over here is very unique circumstance because not allowing her to choose to be a slave would be, so to speak, impinging on her freedom. So the question that we're left with is, in your opinion, should a person be free to choose to be a slave? Anybody? No. No, okay. That's once they're already a slave that they can continue to be a slave. And we'll get to that in a moment, okay? So the question is, why would it depend on time period if the concept is, and I'll, let's take a ex- practical example and we'll get to it a little bit later also, because let's say a person chooses to stay in prison. He has a roof over his head, he gets three meals a day. Should we, should we, he chooses to stay in tr- prison, doesn't want to leave. Should we allow him to stay in prison? His free choice is, I want to stay in prison. If we're a country of liberty, civil liberties or whatever, my liberty is that I can choose to see you to speak to some type of compulsory type of segregation or coercion, if you want to call it of that sort. So if we take it a step further, contemporary philosophy recognizes that there are two types of definitions when we talk about freedom or liberty. And what we're going to talk about today is explore these two differences and see how they apply to Jewish law as well. And here in text number two tells us the two theories of freedom. Text number one was the story that we just watched on the screen. Text number two on page 106. Negative liberty is the absence of obstacles, barriers, or constraints. One has negative liberty to the extent that actions are available to one in his negative sense. Positive liberty is the possibility of acting or the fact of acting in such a way as to take control of one's life and realize one's fundamental purposes. The idea of distinguishing between a negative and positive sense of the term of liberty goes back to at least Kant and was examined and defended in depth by Isaiah Berlin in 1950s and 1960s. So what we have over here is two definitions of what are negative liberty and positive liberty. Negative liberty is often referred to as something as freedom from, and positive liberty is what you would call freedom to. Which of these definitions would you resonates more with you? The concept of freedom from is liberty or freedom to? Anyone? 
What would you say is, resonates more with you? Which kind of freedom? That the definition of freedom means liberty, freedom from or freedom to? Negative freedom or positive freedom? Negative liberty means freedom from constraints that I'm not longer held back to do any certain things. Or the freedom to, I can now go and do and explore beyond and realize my life's purpose. Which one would you say? The positive? Why? To spring forward. Okay. Let's apply these two cases in, in the case of Betty. If I say that freedom, liberty, means negative, negative freedom, then in this case, when we talk about Betty, then the definition is uh, she's free from outside constraints. She has the right to be able to choose to stay as a slave because I'm not holding her back. If she wants that she can go, the negative freedom she has. Does she have positive freedom? Can she go and explore and become whatever she wants? Absolutely not. Why? Because she's a slave. Well, that's why I say that, because, because she says her family's in Tennessee, her life's in Tennessee, so could she say, I want to be free and have my In Tennessee. Yeah. But the problem over here is no. So she has the right to choose if she wants to go back with Mrs. Sweet, so that's negative freedom, but does she have positive freedom? Absolutely not. This argument also, when we look at it from both sides, even the positive freedom, when we look at it, has, has both ways. Because at the end of the day, who defines what freedom is? As we gave the example of a person who wants to stay in jail. Is that freedom? For him, it's freedom because he has a roof over his head. Somebody else doesn't want to go work for a living. I'd rather have, why should he stay in a homeless shelter, stay in, in jail? So the question is, who defines what is freedom? For one, one person, slavery is freedom. And for another person, it may not be so. What slavery for one may be freedom for another. And every single person can define freedom based on what they're used to, they're accustomed to. Like the big argument that was made in the Middle East that the people want to have a dictatorship or they don't want to have a dictatorship. Every single person feels that this is their type of freedom. So why? So freedom is, a, so to speak, a subjective word to be able to decide. Each person applies it in their own way. And even though there may be many strong arguments for allowing people to choose slavery according to both theories and freedom, I think there's probably a universal consensus, an intuitive consensus, that slavery should not be something that's an available choice for people. And that's why eventually slavery was abolished. But the concept that if we look at it from the two definitions, from a negative freedom to a positive freedom, one can start to theologically theorize and say, well, from a negative freedom, I'm not holding her back, but is it that positive freedom? And over here we come to the conflict of what is freedom and how do we define freedom? But why is it that the universal intuition of anybody would say that slavery is something which is wrong? To understand the basis of this intuition, let's take it a step further in Jewish sources. Where do we find the first concept of freedom? Freedom is ingrained within the Jewish DNA. The birth of the Jewish people came about through freedom. 
When there was the birth of the Jewish people, the Torah calls it, is the exodus of Egypt was the birth of the Jewish people. And the exodus of Egypt is something we remember in every single part of our prayers. We say it in the Shema. We say it in the Kiddush and Shabbat. We say it on Passover every single year. And even one of the, uh, one of the statements that are brought in Jewish law on every single day and every single generation, a person has to believe as, as, as to feel as if he went out of Egypt. Freedom, a personal freedom according to Judaism is something which is fundamental in every aspect of life. And if you look in all the uh, freedom marches throughout history, Jewish people were on the forefront. But how does Judaism define freedom? What does Judaism tell us freedom is all about? And if we're going to look in the next few texts that we're going to see, we'll see a surprising definition uh, to what Torah defines as freedom. And the Torah says as follows. Text number 3, page 108. No person is free except for those that occupy themselves with the Torah. Now what do we see from here? That according to this text, only Torah is the that's the manual of life with the 613 commandments with a myriad of laws. That's freedom. Now how does that work out? Now, if you look at the linkage between freedom and the concept of Exodus, starts already from the beginning of Exodus, because many people don't know, and maybe in all the command, in all the movies when they say, let my people go, they don't finish off the last part of the sentence. When Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, what did he say? So that they should serve me on the mountain. Let my people go so that they can leave and serve God. So when we talk about God instructing Moses to redeem the Jewish people from Egypt, what was the linkage? When you take the people out of Egypt, they will serve God on this mountain. So the whole entire concept of the Jewish people, as the Torah reiterates many times, even throughout the Torah, even in the Ten Commandments, I am God that took you out of Egypt, and therefore who are we? We are servants of God. As we can see it in text number four, the children of Israel belong to me as servants. They are my servants. Whom I brought out of Egypt, I am your God. The Talmud says, text number five, the children of Israel belong to me as servants with this verse God is saying, they are my servants and not servants to other servants. What is God telling us over here? That from now on, you are no longer servants to a human being. You are the servants of God. You are no, no, no longer servants of Egypt but you're only servants of God. We can no longer be slaves to any human master. But the question that many ask is what kind of freedom of this? In fact, if you look at it, what does this make a person free? There are so many laws. How is that considered freedom? That means, what's the difference? What changed? Before we were slaves to Pharaoh, and now what are we? Slaves to God. It just changed ownership, just changed rulers. And if we see that the continuing linkage between freedom and Torah, and the continuing putting it together, how is this a freedom? This is only a transfer of, of ownership. Before we were servants of Pharaoh, which was physical slavery, and now we became servants of God, which is a mental servitude. Maybe which one's worse, which one's better? But if we analyze this juxtaposition of these two verses, the concepts that God tells us, that you were slaves to Pharaoh, 
And because you were slaves to Pharaoh, you are no longer slaves to any human being. You are only my slaves. You are only my servants. What is God telling us here? God is over here telling us that negative freedom itself is not freedom. Just because you left the bondage of Pharaoh doesn't mean you're free. Whereas they used to say, you can take somebody out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of them. That's what happened to the Jews. Just because they left the Egypt doesn't mean that they're free. When do they become free? It's only once they have positive freedom. Once they are given a goal, once they are given a mission, once they were given the Torah. That means the Torah is telling us in order for us to truly experience freedom, you need to have both. You need to have the negative freedom, which is to leave the constraints behind, and you need to have the positive freedom. You have to have what to live for. So as the sages explained to us, you are no free man like one who studies Torah because now you have a meaning and a purpose and a reason of what to look forward to and to what to have a meaningful life. And that's the true freedom. As our sages tell us now, the Rebbe takes it a step further. Text number six. Service of God is not something that stifles the identity of a Jew, God forbid. On the contrary, divine service is the very core of every Jew's being. This is the meaning of the sages teaching that no person is free except one who occupies himself with the Torah. Even though Torah observance is termed service, observing Torah and mitzvahs is one's true nature. As the Mishnah teaches, I was the one that created, served my creator, only when serving God is one truly free. What the Rebbe of Yer is teaching us is that when it talks about rules, restrictions, that's not talking about slavery. That's not confining a person to a certain limitation and behaving a certain way. That's giving you the tools to for self-expression. So when God took the Jewish people out of Egypt, he said, you are no longer slaves to a human being. You are no longer accountable to a human being. You don't have the limitations. You can do what you want, how you want, where you want. And how is the way that you're going to fulfill that expression is by following the laws of the Torah. Because the laws of the Torah give you the ability to be able to absolutely freely express yourself and to bring out who you truly are. So in other words, when we talk about beyond freedom from and freedom to, there's something else that we have to consider, which is freedom of being, of who you are. I can have negative freedom, which is freedom from Egypt, so to speak. Freedom to, to go to Mount Sinai but then freedom of being, of actually living up to my reality. I have that possibility, I have the capability, and nothing's stopping me. Take, for example, a plant. If I were to take a plant, and take the plant, uproot it, and throw it into the air, let it be free, don't allow it to be subjugated to be earth and soil and water, just let it be free. What's going to happen to that plant? What did I do to that plant? I killed it. Did I make it free? Absolutely not. And on the contrast, if I were to take an animal and tie it and put it in soil and start watering it and throwing all these wonderful chemicals on it, have I helped the animal? Absolutely not. That means every single creature that exists in this world has its way of experiencing freedom. For the plant, it's to be in the soil, to be watered, to be exposed to the sun. For the animal, it's to roam and to be in the shade and to have its hay. And for the human being, what is freedom? 
is not only sustaining an environment of freedom where it can roam, where it can explore, but it's allowing its intellect as well not to be construed, not to be limited, to be able to explore, think, and beyond itself, to be able to express. And that's what it means truly free. And therefore, the core part of a person's divine service, of which God created every single human being, is that we should have the ability to express that relationship that we have with God. And for that reason, if you take a moment and you think about it, why is it so intuitively there is no person in the world that says slavery should be back in power? That we should have slavery again. Everybody's against slavery. Why? Because for a human being, the concept of controlling somebody else and another person is the core element of a person that they can think for themselves. And therefore, when there were cults and there were other things that tried to brainwash people, people look at it in disgust and detest. Because the core thing of a human being is that you can think for yourself, that you can be for yourself. In the words of Rabbi Tzadik HaKohen of Lublin, a great scholar in the early 1900s, in the late 1800s, he said as follows, Slavery is an unnatural state. The natural order of the universe is that animals are under the dominion of humans, but it against the natural order for a human to be a slave to another human. Enslavement to another person is something which is an inhumane state, inhumane type of behavior. A slave isn't just a person with a compromised freedom. It's a person that his entire humanity is being denied. It's not a question I'm telling you, go work over here or go work over here, stay in the prison a little day longer, a little shade day shorter. That's not what it's about. A slave means that you're not allowing this person to fulfill his dream, his promise, to be who they are. You're taking away. So when you talk about the free choice of a person being a slave is a natural impossibility because being a slave is not a human state. That's not what humans are meant to be. Humans are meant to be free thinkers, free explorers, and be able to live to the best reality, not based on somebody else's limitations. And therefore, from the perspective of neg negative liberty... One can say, okay, I'm free. Nobody's holding you back. Nobody forced you to go back to the couple. But at the end of the day, yes, there's no coercion. But at the end, what's happening here? Their free choice is one, not to be free choice, but that's not an unnatural, that's an unnatural coercion. And therefore, maybe there may be something motivating them. Maybe she had family there that she wanted to go back, so therefore she was willing to take that coercion. She made a choice to accept that coercion. But should we be facilitating such a type of coercion? Do we have the right to allow a person to make such a choice? From a negative liberty definition, you may say, yes, that's their choice. But from a positive liberty, we consider freedom from slavery something which is necessary for a person to realize their purpose in their life and therefore one should not be able to hold a person back it should, one should not allow a person to make that choice of going into slavery and especially from a Jewish perspective where it's inhuman for a person to be a slave to another human being so what about the person who let's say wants to stay in jail At the end of the so at the end so so at the end of the day we cannot force people to do anything in life as we know 
And there are certain people that love to live under some type of coercion. Some people love to be subjugated, to be hurt, and to be uh, regulated or to be told, you know, it's a certain type of personality. Not always is it a healthy personality. Now, if there's a person in jail that they find their calling and helping people in jail, so then they're not living, then they're not a slave. Then they're not living in jail, typically, because then they're able to do what they can. So it's not just making do in a circumstance. They made the choice that they find this. They're calling a life, so it's not slavery. We are therefore freedom as we go. Freedom is how one may define his purpose in life, is freedom. So if I define my, that's the concept of positive liberty, is if I define my purpose in life to live in such a type of environment and to create this type of environment, then it's not, then it's not uh, slavery. So then she could have been a contractor. She could have been a worker in the house. The concept of slavery, as we know back then, wasn't just that they were getting a roof over that. This These couple had to be a very nice couple to them. But the slavery in itself was a, was a problem. How they were treated and so on. We go now to another two cases. Again, looking at the concept of freedom. And talking about, when we talk about borrowing money and loaning money, and when a person owes money in these type of cases. And how we look about it of when a person owes money to another person and what are his obligations in repaying a debt. You know, they say a story of once this uh, investment business was looking for in-house counsel. And they decided to save a little money instead of sending everything out to different lawyers, they were going to hire a lawyer to come do all the work for them. So this uh, fellow, Mr. White, who was the investment banker in and uh, interviews Mr. Greenberg, a new lawyer, and he comes into his office and he says, listen here, Mr. Greenberg, in this practice investment banking, we need to have real, honest, upstanding individuals. Are you such an individual? So Mr. Greenberg tells him, I'll tell you, I'm a real honest guy. I'll tell you, my father gave me a loan, $15,000, to go through law school. My first case I tried, I paid him back right away the $15,000. Mr. White says, wow, that's very impressive. What kind of case was it that you made $15,000 that you were able to pay him? Oh, well, my father sued me for the money. (laughs) So case number A is a real case scenario that happened. This case that actually happened in the time of the rush in the early 1300s. And he said as follows, the 1250 to 1230, the 12, 12, the 13th century, I should say, in the 1200s. And the story is as follows. Here's a, uh, it's a, you know, a cons- uh, small version of the actual entire story and says as follows. Case study A on page 112. Reuben borrowed money from Shimon and failed to repay the loan. Reuben is now living with a relative where he eats good food, dons expensive clothing, his wife is similarly expensively attired and even provides gifts to her friends. Reuben claims that all of this is provided by his relative, whereas he personally is penniless. He sits sits idle and refuses to engage in any labor or business of the type he always performed in the past because he knows that any money he earns will necessarily go towards repaying the loan. So this is maybe a typical bankruptcy case. The person went bankrupt, but he's still living up a life on somebody else's dime, and he will not pay up the loan. If you were the judge, what were your decision if this case came before you? Would you force and compel Reuben to go get a job 
and pay up the loan. Case number B. Mr. Britton signed a contract to work for Mr. Turner for one year, for which he would be paid $120 in total, equaling $10 a month. But Britton ceased working at nine months, and Turner was able to find a replacement worker for the remaining three months for $45, equaling $15 a month. Turner did not pay Britton anything for his uncompleted contract. And Britton sued to collect the money for the work that he performed. In your opinion, how much do you think Mr. Britton should receive as payment for his work? Would you say he should get $0 because of a breach of contract? $90 because he worked 9 out of the 12 months, so he should be prorated? Or $70, $75 because Britton was only entitled prorated pay of 90 Because of his breach of contract, he lost because he had to pay $15 for the new guy, so he lost out $10. So this should be deducted from Britton's pay. So what would you say? Let's start with case number one. Anybody say we should compel Reuben to go work and pay back his job? Or you can't compel him to go work? Okay, can't compel him. What about which, how much should he we pay back? Should he get zero for breach of contract, 90 for the time that he paid, or 75 because he incurred a loss? He incurred a loss. You say 75. People failing to pay up their debts is not a new idea. It's been a problem of all ages. A problem going back thousands of years. In fact, I think in England there was something called a debtor's prison that they put people into prison for not paying their debt. And there were many different ways how people used to deal with repaying debt. Like you mentioned before in the Torah when it talks about a person being sold, selling himself as a slave. One of the reasons why he would sell himself as a slave is because he owed somebody money. So he said, instead of paying you with the money, I will go work for you. So there were two ways how generally how people paid up their debt. Number one, they would either pay up their debt either by um, going to prison and until them or a relative would come up with the money and then they were still held in prison. Or two, the method was that they would be, have to have work for the person or work somebody else in order to pay up the debt. Now, according to Jewish law, and according to the Torah, it's actually a biblical obligation. There's a biblical obligation for a person to repay his debt to the extent that a person that does not pay up his debt, according to the Torah, is called Russia, evil, wicked. The terminology that, uh, that is brought down in Psalms 37, one who borrows and does, an evil person borrows and does not pay back. A wicked person borrows and does not pay back. So when a person fails to pay his debt, technically all his assets can be confiscated besides the bare minimum that he has that he has to clothe himself and wear and so on. But we know the methods of debt prison and bondage have always been completely forbidden under Jewish law. Maimonides summarizes this and Maimonides says as follows. Maimonides tells us, Scripture establishes, text number 8 on page 115, that when creditors demand payment of debt and the debtor's own assets, the debtor's existential needs must be provided for, following which the remainder of the debtor's assets are granted for, to the creditors. If the debtor has no assets, or if their assets are only sufficient to provide their existential needs, then nothing can be done to the debtors and they may, be, they may not be imprisoned. 
So the law states clearly here that what are number one, everything that the person in essentials have to be covered. Number two, only the remaining assets are granted to the creditor. And number three, there is a no prison sentence that can be given. So debtor's prison that was long abolished in England and eventually United States is something which Judaism does not allow. Otherwise, there's almost nothing you can do to get your loan back according to Judaism. It's an interesting thing that it goes even a step further, that if you know the person doesn't have money, you're not even allowed to harass him or collect it from him. Only if you know that he has the money and he's not paying you back, then can you harass him and ask him for the money. But if you know that he doesn't have the money, you even have to cross the street that you shouldn't feel that he's imposed by just seeing you. You have the obligation, so to speak, to allow him until he comes back with the money. Under the first case, 38, could you go to the wealthy individual and say, make some, let's say, go to his cousin? Go to those cousin and say, uh, stop paying uh, any money you give him. Uh, any money ex- uh, above the extension, uh, you know, the... So actually not. And there's a there's word... Ability, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, the terminology in the Talmud is that the, uh, the owner, the wealthy guy, can tell the loan, the lender, and say, At lav I have no business with you. I don't know you. Well, my cousin's staying in my house. Who are you? What do I have to do with you? Just because he owes you money is not my business. Now, if he wants to be a nice guy, we'll talk about that. But at the end of the day, there is no legal obligation from the wealthy person. On the contrary, he can tell the lender, I don't know you. Because he owes you money. How does it become my business? I'm actually doing charity, helping this guy out. Well, a little bit different. You can go to the employer, for example. I could go to the employer, take the assets, correct. You know, if there's a salary involved or something. According to Jewish law, I can do the same. Why? Because this person's working. And therefore, his wages beyond or, or anything above what he needs essentially gets relinquished. But I cannot go to his host, whoever is giving him whatever he needs, to be able to tell them, hey, why are you giving them that much money? He owes me a lot of money. We'll get to that in a moment. So that's what we're to a case right here. So this case comes to the rush. The rush was Rabbi Usher, was a 13th to 14th century rabbi. He served in Germany and Spain. And the case that we spoke about actually came to him beforehand. And the case in this case is a little more extensive. We just took the main parts that are here, that actually this wealthy guy was a very successful businessman, then fell on hard times, and decided, and now he refused to work. In the actual case itself, they did have a little business, and he claimed that the business that they ran was not their own business. They were running it for the wealthy guy that they're working for, but they did not make any money off the business. And... Um, and the case over here was brought before the rush. And the question was that this guy knows how to make a living because he was successful. So let him go back out there, make the money, and repay his, and repay his debt. Why is he sitting in retirement over here while he owes so many people money? And the creditor petitioned the local rabbinic court asking them to compel this businessman to go back to work and pay up his debt. And of course, the demand was not to sell him into slavery, not to put him into prison. All they were asking, this guy is a businessman, put him back into employment so he can pay me up. And here's what the rush responded. Text number nine. Shimon's request that Reuben's work in order to repay his debt is not something that the court can compel. The court cannot 
extend its jurisdiction over Reuben's actual person by compelling him to perform work in order to repay his debt. What the Rush was saying is as follows. This guy may be a scoundrel, may be evil, may be wicked, may be terrible, and is doing something which is against Torah law, he has to pay back his debt. But there's two separate things here. What this guy is doing and what we can compel him to do. I cannot compel this person to go work. You cannot force a person to go get a job. If you're paying him unemployment, I think in according to the unemployment laws, this expires and after six months if the guy doesn't show any due diligence to go to work, okay, the government doesn't have to pay any more unemployment. But this is a separate story. You owe this guy money from before and now you decided you don't want to work. I can't force you to work to, to pay back my money. To compel a person to work, no matter what the conditions of the work, is definite, is what that's, what's that saying by definition? I'm enslaving him. And no matter how bad of a person is, and no matter how wicked he is, we cannot force a person to work because that would be called slavery. Now, when we talk about a religious legal system, halachic legal system, is very different than a secular legal system. Because it's not just talking about a body of enforceable laws. Because in halacha we have laws which are also very not enforceable. And the question is that halacha can require something on someone from a religious and ethical reason. That means even though I can't enforce you to do it, halachically, if it's required by law for you to do it, I can tell you that's what you should be doing. For example, if this fellow were to walk over to his rabbi, and ask his rabbi, am I required to go get a job to pay back this loan? According to Jewish law, he's not required to get a job to pay back the loan. According to Jewish law, he's required to pay back the loan. That's what he's required to do. By any means possible. Are you required to get a job to pay back the loan? Absolutely not, because that's already slavery. And here's where the fine line is. That means the position is that you have a religious obligation to pay back the loan. I don't care how. Take from your wealthy relative and pay it back. Borrow the money and then pay back in installments, whatever it may be. But can the rabbi tell this individual, go get a job so that Reuben should get his money back? I can't do that. Not from an ethical point of view, not from a lachic point of view, not from a religious point of view, because we cannot compel people to work. And that means that even under a personal religious obligation, Jewish law does not require a person to go get a job. Maybe that's why you see so many people without jobs. But <laughs> you're obligated by Jewish law to return your debt, and therefore you're considered wicked if you don't, and every single day that you don't return your debt is considered a sin, but I can't force you to get a job about it because it's considered a form of slavery. Radical in its time, and for thousands of years, Subsequently, in the modern era, the Jewish stance against debt bondage has been adopted today by all Western democracies. The 13th Amendment in the United States Constitution inscribed into U.S. law is that we cannot, slavery is abolished, but what do we still have? Forced labor in the penal code, which is there is an exclusion. If you look in text number 10, what is prison labor? The 13th Amendment provided a certain notable exception. That means as a punishment for a crime, I can put somebody in prison, and how much do they get in prison for working? They, they don't even get the money. They get money in the commissary, and which is about like two cents an hour. 
Text number 10. Once cleared by the prison doctor, inmates can be forced to work under the threat of punishment as severe as solitary confinement. Legally, this labor may be totally uncompensated. More typically, inmates are paid meagerly as little as two cents per hour for their full-time work in the fields. Manufacturing warehouses or kitchens, how is this legal? Didn't the 13th Amendment abolish all forms of slavery and involuntary servitude in this country? Not quite. In the shining compromise of freedom that was the 13th Amendment, a sharp exception was carved out. Section 1 of the amendment provides neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any other place subject to their jurisdiction. Simply put, incarcerated persons have no constitutional right in this arena. They can be forced to work as punishment for their crimes. What we see over here clearly, that from Western law, Western democracies, slavery is abolished, but once a person's put into prison, I can force them to do whatever I want, which that is, for all practical purposes, slavery. Judaism says absolutely not. I can't compel a person to work for me for whatever reason it may be. And therefore, it abolishes any type of shape of slavery in any case. And therefore, of course, if you mention, as you mentioned before, giving inmates the option to work, for them to develop their skills, and for them to be able to come out of prison better skilled and better people, that is allowed even according to Jewish law. That means if I can give this person, teach this person a skill, and because of that he can make money and pay back the debt, that's allowed. I can't compel him to study that, but I can do that and not pay him, so to speak, to be able to compensate and so on. An interesting thing is that even according to secular law, there is a case where a person will be thrown into prison for not paying up a debt. In which case? For example, if a person doesn't pay child support, if a person doesn't uh, stole wages or whatever it may be, or if the court says that he has to pay a certain type of compensation for what the person did, so he's not technically being thrown into court, for, uh, thrown into jail for not paying the debt, he's thrown into jail for not follow, for being in contempt of court, right? So it's not considered bondage, but technically speaking, if you boil, if you boil it down, why is he be thrown into jail? Because he didn't pay up the debt. So that's if you want to call it. Another interesting thing is in addition to the concept of debt bondage, debtor's prison existed in England and the United States. And in fact, just to hear some interesting uh, American history, two signatories of the Declaration of Independence, James Wilson and Robert Morris, were both later incarcerated for unpaid debts in 1850s, in the mid-1850s, right, right before it was taken out. But in 1824, there was a Londoner named John Dickens who was imprisoned in the notorious Marshley, I don't know how even pronounce it, but prison, for a debt that he was unable to pay. And because of that, his son Charles, who was 10 years, 12 years old at the time, had to go work in a factory sticking labels onto bottles for a, small, for a meager six shillings a week. And young Charles, who later on became a great novelist in the Victorian period, and was deeply affected by his father's disgrace and by his disgrace as well, used to take, sorry, Charles Dickens, yeah, and in many of his novels, the, a recurring theme is of this, of the conditions that were there in the bondage prisons. And just, uh, here's a little one in text number 11. The debtors were sent to jail until they were able to pay off their debts. They were called debtors' prison, a peculiar form of punishment, Indefinite incarceration was the mode of punishment. Sometimes the convicts stayed with their families in the prison. Family members there freaked to come and go according to their wish. Therefore, even children were born and raised there. 
The prison was full of rats, lice, and fleas. The prisoners were denied basic necessities of life, such as food and water and clothing. It is said that these places were so duty, dirty and filthy that around 25% of the inmates died due to the horrible living conditions. I think that was one of the reasons why he was shut down as well. The debtors were imprisoned and tortured at the pleasure of the creditors. Where in other when other countries of Europe had legislation limiting the debt imprisonment term to one year, England did not have such law. When in 1842 the Fleet Prison was closed, it was found that debtors were, more, were there for more than 30 years. And of course, such type of institutions, according to Jewish law, never existed. Because as we can see, the concept of such type of ideas, that there should be a prison for some, sending somebody to prison because he didn't pay up a debt, didn't exist in Judaism. It takes even a step further. In the following text, we come to a case. We are in 14th century Aragon, which is today now part of modern Spain. There was a local Jew who was called for incarceration for his debtors. The Jew that they called Ruvain, he took a loan, and in the contract, this is an interesting one, in the contract he stipulated that should he not pay back the loan, he will be incarcerated. He wanted to be so sure that I'm going to pay you back that the guy should give him the loan. He said, if I don't pay you back, you can go and put me in and incarcerate me. Now the guy didn't pay back the loan, so Shimon comes along to the rabbi and says, I have a document, he signed on it, he agreed to be incarcerated. He alone said, and this is our case, that we started off with, free choice. He said he's willing to be incarcerated. And therefore, when Reuben failed to pay the loan, the leading halachic authority at the time was known as the Rivash, Rabbi Yitzchak Mancheshes, was asked what to do. In text number 12, he tells them as follows. The inquiry was as follows. <coughs> Reuben borrowed money from Shimon in the contract. Reuben put up his personal freedom as collateral. For so is the law in Aragon. If a debtor does not own available assets for which his debt can be repaid, he is incarcerated. Shimon, the creditor, now demands the repayment of his loan. But Reuben has no assets from which to pay. Shimon requests that Reuben be imprisoned, as he explicitly agreed in the contract. Reuben argues that he cannot be imprisoned for his debt because there is no precedent in Jewish law for a person to be imprisoned to a debt. You requested my opinion on the law in such a case. And the Rivash's response is as follows. Jewish law sides with Reuben the debtor. He cannot, a person cannot consent to be incarcerated. The Torah states, the children of Israel belong to me as servants from which we derive they cannot be made servants to other servants. No contract clause can allow for a person to be compelled to work, not even with his regular vocation. It goes without saying, no clause can allow a person to be incarcerated and made to be languished in the dark dungeon. What we see over here is, there clearly, that the Rivash clearly says, Reuben had no right to put up such a type of collateral as a loan, he can't put himself as a collateral, basically, and therefore a person cannot be enslaved against his will. In modern times, which was something which was uniquely uh, Jewish at the time, today became universal, and therefore debtor's prison don't exist. There is one caveat, which we're not going to go into, but there is a concept, which if the prison will compel, that means scare the person, that means we know the person has the money, and he's just being an idiot and doesn't want to pay the money, we can then threaten him and put him into prison until he says, okay, I'll come up with the money. So prison can be used as a tactic 
to force a person to pay. And even then, there are arguments if we can use it. There's an argument between the uh, Beis Yosef and the Ramah if one can use a, the tactic of prison to be able to compel the person to, so to speak, pay up or not. And that's in itself a debate. Most halachic authorities will say that it can be used as a warning sign. Again, but the problem is, are we compelling this person to slavery? But it's not that we're compelling him to slavery. We're using it as a threat, so to speak, to be able to get him to pay up. Another area of Jewish law where we have a question of liberties and the value of liberties expressed in this freedom, where it grants employees under contract to quit at any time without penalty. And here's an interesting one. The right to quit. Text number 21. I'm sorry, text number 13, page 121. A worker has the right to withdraw from their employment even in the middle of a working day. The right emerges from the verse, the children of Israel belong to me as servants, whereby God is stating they are my servants, not servants to other servants. What does this mean in a practical level? <coughs> After all, we see the Jewish law. No person can be forced to work. And therefore, what the Torah tells us over here, as we're going to see in the next quote of the, of the tour, which is one of the codifiers of Jewish law, tells us that a person can quit, A, an employee can quit at any time, he can quit at any time without penalty, and when he quits at any time without penalty, he still needs to be paid in full for the time that he worked. Not for what he didn't work, but for the time that he worked. Text number 14. An, employer has, an employee has the right to quit their job even in the middle of the day, and they are given the upper hand when calculating the pay that they are entitled to receive. The quitting employee is entitled to payment for the value of the work accomplished before quitting, this remains true even if the market rate of such a work has since risen, leaving the employer unable to hire another worker due to complete the job with the remainder of the funds. For example, an employee was hired for eight dinar per day, but quit halfway through the day. Even if the cost of this particular form of labor has now risen to 12 dinar per day, so that the replacement worker for the second half of the day will charge six dinar, the quitting employer must still be paid four dinar for his half-day work. We do not protect the employer from having to pay more for the, of, than the eight dinar they originally intended to pay by deducting the expense of the replacement workers from the quitting workers' pay, which would leave the latter with only two dinar. What we see over here is that Jewish law tells us you have the right to quit. Now, of course, we're not advocating to quit in middle of your job. We're not advocating that this is the right thing to do, that when you do something, there's a verse in Tehillim that says, a person should be true to his word. And therefore, if I take upon myself a job, I should complete the job. However, breaking a contract is, uh, and as we know, breaking a contract is wrong, but the employer, and the employer has every right to be mad at the employee that's quitting, but the employee has the upper hand. What does it mean, the upper hand? Now, the upper hand in this case, that the tour brings is, for example, if labor goes up in the middle of the day, or for this type of labor, I can only find somebody that I have to pay more. I cannot prorate this individual and take off from his pay because it's going to cost me more at the end of the day. I have to pay him for whatever I, whatever he worked with the amount of money that I agreed to pay him, even though I will incur a loss. However, if the employee quitting is going to incur a loss an irretrievable loss. Take, for example, uh, he, I hire this guy to um, change, to fix the roof. So he comes and he takes off 
the old shingles and then leaves in the middle of the day. Some left now at a roof without shingles and it starts to rain and because of that, everything gets ruined. This is a loss that this person caused because of the breach of contract. I can hold them accountable for it. But I cannot hold them accountable if I now have to go get a contractor and another contractor costs more money to be able to finish it. That I cannot take away from him. So by giving the employee what we have over here is the halacha tells us that the employer has the lower hand and that means that he has to, to incur the fact that he has to hire somebody else. Yes? The difference that he has to now pay another contractor? So under Jewish law he cannot. That loss he cannot pay because he worked I, under the contract I have to give him. Always the employee has the upper hand. As I said, there are limits of what he's allowed to quit for. For example, if by quitting he's going to sustain an irretrievable loss, then the employer is not even allowed, an employee is not allowed to quit. So for example, if the guy that's our case where he's fixing the roof and he sees it's about to rain, he can't quit in the middle of the job. He's not allowed to quit in the middle of the job. Just look in text number 15 so you'll see that case. Irretrie- irreversible loss in text number 15 is if the work was time-sensitive and neglect will cause irreversible loss, Irreversible damage, the quitting employee has the lower hand in the calculation of the wages. For example, workers hired to remove flax from the water. It is soaking, and if the flax was not punctually removed from the water, it will decay. So here you see that the flax is going to get ruined. Or if there's an extenuating circumstance, such as illness or death in a family member, the employer has the right to quit while retaining the upper hand in calculation of their wages. Absent of such circumstances, the employee is given the lower hand when calculating their pay because quitting prematurely will cause the employer irreversible loss. So if there will be an irreversible loss, like in the case, or then he has the lower hand. But if it's in any other case, then the employee, the employee has the upper hand. But what's the logic behind it? Why is that? Why does the Torah give so much credit to the employee? Why does the employer have some... He hired a guy, breach of contract. What's the problem here? Now think about it this way. If I were to ask you, what's the greatest benefit for working for yourself? In one word. Freedom. Okay. What's the greatest benefit of working for somebody else? No responsibility, right? Also, freedom. Different type of freedom. One is a freedom to do what you want. And one is a freedom that I don't have to do what I want. It's a different type of level of freedom. That means in any case when you talk about when a person is self-employed, I have autonomy. I can come when I want. I can go what I want. If I don't want this job, I won't take that job. But at the same time, if I'm an employee, I have security. Whether a job comes in today or doesn't, I'm still going to get paid. At the same time, when I'm self-employed, I have the freedom. What's my freedom? I can come when I want, do what I want, do the jobs I want. And when I'm an employee, I'm dependent on my employer. In other words, when people become employees rather than independent contractors, what are they doing? They are trading their comfort and stability to have somebody else worry about their money. And because of that, they are serving, if you want to call it, a servitude to, to those people. Now, Jewish law is really concerned about this loss of freedom. At the end of the day, because I'm working for somebody else, I have given up a certain freedom. 
And because of that, the Torah wants to protect those freedoms. That at any time, if I want to revert back and get my independence, I should be allowed to. And therefore, the Torah says, I can quit at any time without incurring a loss. Since the law is motivated by freedom of its employees, and therefore it only implies to employees and not to independent contractors. So for example, let's take our example again. If I make a contract, and maybe this is different also in secular law, if I make a contract with a person, come work for me today, and then the guy leaves in midday, I can't have any arguments. You quit the contract, even though I hired him for the day. But if I hired him to do a job, fix my roof, then he has an obligation to finish the roof. And if there's any loss, and I can hold him to it, if there's any loss, even if it means hiring somebody else for a larger amount of money. You see the difference? If it's an independent contractor, that means he already has his freedom, so therefore the Torah is not worried about the freedom. You can't quit my job. But if it's an employee, the Torah is concerned about their freedom, and therefore he can quit when any time to be able to retain back his freedom. An independent contract, according to secular law, can you hold the guy liable if he quits in the middle? It's a breach of contract, right? Absolutely. Same idea in Jewish law. So here, look at this in text number 16. The law granting an employee right to quit does not extend to independent contractors. An employee is protected by the principle applied in the verse, they my servants, not servants of servants. But this does not apply to independent contractors. Why? Because they're contractors for themselves. And therefore, in the case of an independent contractor, they will have the lower hand. And therefore, a contractor who covers the costs, an employee doesn't. And therefore, if we want to go back to our, to our case study of Mr. Britton, who he hired, uh, hired an employee to work for him a time, in this case, Mr. Britton, has the upper hand, and therefore he would be deservant of all the money for the time that he worked, which was the $90, even though that his boss had to go hire somebody else for the last two hours for $15 an hour because he was an employee, not an independent contractor. Now, this is also, of course, the exception would be that if Mr. Britton would have caused an irreversible loss, for example, in the case of the flax in the water, that because of him leaving the job, the crop would have got room, or the building would have been rained upon, or something would have happened because of that, then it would, that would not be the case. An American law, by contrast, would always give the quitting worker like Britain the lower hand, and therefore deduct their expenses, like you mentioned before. And therefore you have the right to deduct under U.S. law. A person, I think the law is Britain versus Turner. It was established in 1834, where in that case, the U.S. law a person cannot be compelled to work and is entitled to pay f- even for the partial work, but they don't have the right to quit at any time. And therefore, the person the only gets prorated the amount of time. And if there's a loss that the employer gets, the employee is responsible for that loss. And the reason is because the difference between the way Judaism views freedom and the way secular law views freedom, Judaism views freedom that you cannot compel a person to work and a person has to have his absolute freedom in every single case, while in secular law, Freedom means that you're not held back from doing what you're doing, but if you committed to be incarcerated or if you committed to be enslaved, then you have to fill that obligation and we don't allow you the exemption. So what we've seen from over here is that the world has come a long way in adopting the Jewish value of freedom when it comes to the institutions of such as um, death prison, slavery, and the revolutionary Jewish position that has become mainstream in areas of workers 
freedom to quit, but much progress has been made, although, as we can see, Jewish law is a few steps ahead. But what is the Jewish law telling us and what the message is more than that? It's beyond the legal application. Is what God is telling us and Judaism is telling us that it's not enough to be free of slavery. It's not enough to just say that you're not obligated to do A, B, C, and D. But in addition to being free from anyone, we also must be free from anything. We must be free from ourselves and we must not be limited or compelled or coerced into anything or any time. As in the words of the great poet, Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, he said as follows, Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, who was in the time of the 11th century, said, he put this poem as follows, Servants of time are servants of servants. A servant of God is alone is free. Therefore, when each person seeks their portion, my portion is God, says, soul, says my soul for me. What is Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi talking about when he says, a servant of time. And I'm sure any person that has a job understands what a servant of time is. A servant of time is that even though I'm an independent contractor, but if I got to be at a place at 9 o'clock, I'm bound to the clock. I'm a servant of time. A servant of time means that I have different ways where people get caught up with deadlines, rush of life. I have to be at a certain place at a certain time. I have to finish a certain thing at a certain time. And all of a sudden you become a slave to the environment, a slave to your work, which you yourself may have imposed. But you're becoming a slave to a certain level to be able to behave a certain way, to be able to act a certain way, to be able to do a certain way. Think. The Jewish value of, free, value of freedom is that telling us that we cannot be a slave to our jobs. We should not be a slave to society. We should not be a slave to the fads that are going on. And therefore, we shouldn't even be a slave to our own passions and desires. You can have a passion to do something, but recognize you can quit at any time. Just because yesterday you decided that you're going to work on a 12-hour day, doesn't mean you have to. If you found something else more important and you feel that this is not your life calling, quit. What does Judaism tell us? The only true freedom is a person who studies Torah. What is that telling us? That the only true freedom is that when you are willing to accept and realize and recognize that I can do everything possible in my way to be able to bring out that spark of godliness. Nothing's going to stop me. I don't care what my neighbor thinks. I don't care what my boss thinks. I don't care what the world thinks. That is freedom. Freedom means that I'm not a slave to my environment. I'm not a slave to the fans that are going around. There's nothing externally that's compelling me to behave a certain way. And how does one have that? Is when they're connected to the Torah. Because when we're connected to a higher source, something that reveals of who we truly are, we automatically are not enslaved by anything else. You do what you need to do. And how do Jews today have the chutzpah, if you want to call it, that in every single environment they thrive, regardless of how difficult the persecutions were, was because they recognized they're not a slave to their society. They didn't have to be like the Joneses. They didn't have to be like everybody else. And therefore, for men to wear their black hats and their jackets and to dress the way they want, to look the way they want, to take off Shabbos when they wanted, that's what made them strong. What forced Jews to be able to create new niches in every type of business and every type of environment is because when they stood up to their employers and said, I'm not going to work on Shabbos, they weren't a slave to their job. They weren't a slave to their environment. That's what created, gave the Jewish people the strength to be able to be free, true freedom in every single part of their life. <coughs> Next week, 
we will deal with ownership, the legal status. Is it a legal status or is it just an abstract philosophical matter? How does this apply? What does this do? And what are the impacts in Jewish law versus secular law? Lesson four, beyond personal freedom. One, Judaism teaches that true freedom is living the life we were created to live. This requires freedom from human masters and devotion to God as the one true master. Two, in the past, people could be forced into slavery for failing to repay debts. Even today, prisoners can be legally compelled to work. By contrast, Jewish law does not allow for anyone to be compelled to work against their will. Three, debt prison was another once ubiquitous tool for debt recovery. Jewish law has always banned debt prisons, even when stipulated in a loan agreement. Four, the employer-employee relationship requires an employee to surrender a certain degree of their freedom. Jewish law protects employees from veering too close to slavery by guaranteeing their right to quit mid-contract without penalty, unless doing so would cause the employer irretrievable loss. And that's it. That's a wrap.